Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. When the Hall of Fame veterans ballots were released last week, Tigers fans had two reasons to cheer and one to groan. Alan Trammell and Jack Morris are up for election next month, but Lou Whitaker isn't. What's going on? I asked Graham Womack, who covers the Hall of Fame for the Sporting News. He's recently interviewed each of those three Tigers from the 1984 team and several other former players around baseball who are all seeking enshrinement in Cooperstown. Graham Womack, good to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Hey, uh, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me on here. So Tigers fans have a lot of gripes right now. First, tell us what we're griping about. The Modern Baseball Era Committee is one of four new committees and a new restructuring by the Hall of Fame. What changed in this restructuring? What problem were they trying to solve, and do they seem to be solving it? Yeah, no, so a great series of questions. Basically, um, what's traditionally been known as the Veterans Committee at the Hall of Fame has not enshrined a living player since Bill Mazeroski in 2001. Um, so over the last about 16 years, you know, the Hall of Fame has kind of been tinkering with, with different things to, to deal with this. They initially, after Mazeroski got, got inducted, uh, they switched to having the Veterans Committee vote basically every other year. I think it was the, the electorate was all living Hall of Fame players, I want to say, and then a, a series of veteran uh, veteran writers. I, I would have to double-check that, but I think the setup was something close to that. So that setup wasn't really getting guys in uh, too much. So they they switched to um, they switched to an era committee structure in 2010. Initially, there were there were there were three so-called era committees. There was the expansion era committee. Um, there was, I believe it was the Golden Era Committee and then the uh, really unfortunately named Pre-Integration Era Committee. Um, so each of those committees, uh, Pre-Integration Era covered, I want to say, 1946 and before. Uh, Golden Era was 1947 to 72. And then the Expansion Era was everything since 1973. Um, so uh, July 2016, Hall of Fame uh, tweaks that again. They split the era committees into into four committees. They go they they change the uh, the the really unfortunately named pre integration era committee, which incidentally didn't didn't consider Negro leaguers. They changed the name of that to the early days baseball committee. Um, that covers everything before 1950. There's a golden days committee that covers 1950 to 1969. Then there's a modern baseball era committee. It's a real convoluted name that covers guys who are judged to have their their peaks between 1970 and 1987, and that's that's the current veterans ballot. And then there's a, a today's game committee, which covers everybody since 1988. Like I said, super convoluted structure. Um, they tweaked it again last year with the idea that they were they they said publicly that they wanted to get more of these guys in, but. Still, I mean, you don't have any group of veterans candidates getting considered every year. Um, there's a maximum of 10 candidates on the ballot. You, voters can only vote for four. So mathematically, it's still really difficult for a lot of guys to get in. Where Tigers fans would have had hope for this year is that Alan Trammell, Jack Morris, and Lou Whitaker were all eligible for this ballot, as, as were actually a, a number of other kind of prominent players. Uh, Daryl Evans uh, would have been up for consideration. Mickey Lolich might have. His career sort of falls between the Golden Days and the Modern Baseball Era Committee. So the ballot came out a week ago today, and Tigers fans probably got two-thirds of what they were hoping for. Uh, Jack Morris and Alan Trammell both made the ballot. I think they have the two strongest chances of any players on the ballot. 
just in terms of the buzz, you know, kind of these guys have and the level of support they have in the baseball community. Unfortunately, though, Lou Whitaker didn't make the ballot. Um, he was only on the writer's ballot once in 2001. He got 2.9% of the vote, which prevented him from being considered again. You can make an argument that he's one of the top 10 or 15 second basemen in baseball history. I'd say he's probably on the top 10 list, uh, depending on what metrics you use. But fortunately, he's not up for consideration again. And maybe some are looking at Tigers fans and saying, don't get too greedy. You had two players on the ballot, two players who are expected to do pretty well. And maybe even the more you have on the ballot, the more it works against each of them because ballot spots are so limited. And perhaps people want to spread their votes around more. So is it a bad thing or a good thing to risk crowding the ballot? I mean, I'm of the opinion that it's a good thing because I think it it means that more time will be spent kind of on the on the candidates, you know, if they're because you can't really talk about uh, you know Alan Trammell without Lou Whitaker. I don't think you should talk about Jack Morris without you know talking about all the other great players who are on the '84 Tigers. I mean, I, I like Jack Morris. I think he was a you know a good pitcher. I I one of my earliest baseball memories is Game Seven of the '91 World Series. I was eight years old, and I remember. You know, I remember watching uh, his 10-inning duel with uh, John Smoltz, you know, and where he helped win the series for the Twins. But I just I think it's unjust when you look at a team like the 84 Tigers who were just stacked. You know, they they had Alan Trammell. They had, you know, they had Whitaker. They had Kirk Gibson. They had Chet Lemon, Lance Parrish. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. And I, I like to see, you know, kind of credit getting you know, justly spread around. I, I don't like the narrative in baseball of just describing success to just one player. You know, it's a 25-man roster, and really any good playoff team, you know, probably has at least half a dozen real standout players. Jack Morris may have the weakest case statistically when you look at his high ERA, his relatively low wins above replacement, but that may not be a strike against him when you look at this committee, a veterans committee that is not as statistically inclined uh, those great moments that he had, like the 91 series, stand out more with this team. Does a poor statistical case hurt him the least when it comes to these voters? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, um, I, I'm definitely of the belief that, you know, that you know, just older players in general aren't, aren't, aren't typically hugely into sabermetrics. I, you know, I talk to former players pretty regularly. I, I've actually, I mean, I've interviewed, you know, Morris, Trammell, and Whitaker. I've talked to all of them and a, a bunch of other guys. Generally, sabermetrics isn't something that players drill drill too too deep into the older players. But I don't know. What's interesting is that when Morris was on the writers' ballot, and he I think he peaked at like sixty six or sixty seven percent of the vote. That was I want to say out of more than five hundred writers who voted. Now the thing with with that large of a sample of, of voters is you're you're going to have a pretty good idea, uh, you know, of, of what kind of should happen. I mean, in this case, Morris is going to be going. The committee, the Modern Baseball Era Committee, has got 16 voting members. Um, he needs 12 of the members to vote for him to get into the Hall of Fame, but it also means they only need five committee members to vote against him so that he doesn't get into the Hall of Fame. So that just means, yeah, having a few guys who might prefer to focus on other candidates or, you know, a few members who do ascribe to sabermetrics. I mean, it really wouldn't take that much for Morris to not the chair. The Hall of Fame seems to reward peak more than longevity. I mean, there's certainly examples of each, but it seems like if you're a player like Whitaker, you piled up stats year after year, but never had a real breakout season, were never a big factor on the MVP ballot. That may work against you when it comes to voting time. Are you better off having a high peak rather than having consistency over a long career? 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I think Alan Trammell has helped a lot by his 1987 season, you know, or I think he, he finished second in MVP voting to George Bell, and you could you could make the case that he deserved to win the MVP that year. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously to get in the Hall of Fame, you need good career numbers, but, yeah, a lack a lack of real good peak numbers is going to really hurt you unless, you know, unless you have some sort of a statistical milestone you hit, like, Craig Biggio, for instance, Craig Biggio gets in with over 3,000 hits. I don't think Craig Biggio gets in the Hall of Fame if he retires with 2,700 hits. I mean, you know, it's funny because you look at a lot of his numbers from like the 90s, and I mean, he's one of the better second basemen in baseball history. I mean, he's a kind of a 90s version of Joe Morgan to a certain extent, and I'm I'm not the first to say that. By the way, I think I think Bill James made that comparison. Uh, but you know, um, it's it's hard for guys who are seen as just statistical compilers or just guys who are just really good for a long time, but never, never necessarily, you know, an elite superstar, never really touched that during their career. It's just, yeah, there aren't a ton of those guys who get in the Hall of Fame generally. What would you say to many older voters who rely in part on the eye test? They say, I played with this player or against him, or I watched him play, and he had the look and the feel and the moments, the highlights of a Hall of Fame career. And they're kind of taken aback if you go back to them later and say, well, we ran some new numbers, some new calculations, and lo and behold, Lou Whitaker is fourth place and wins above replacement. Is that a hard case to make with that kind of voter? It's interesting because, I mean, the same sort of argument gets applied to Morris, you know, in his favor a lot of times. Like, hey, you know, I think it was Dan Patrick who said, you know, some years ago, maybe four or five years ago, hey, you know, I know what I saw. But I, I guess my counter to that would be, do you really know what you saw, you know? How many times were you really watching this guy take the hell, or how many at-bats were you watching a, a, a guy take? I mean, yeah, we can form opinions about players with, you know, really very little. A lot, a lot of my opinion about Jack Morris, you know, really does come from the 91 series. I mean, that's my, my personal kind of memory of him. And I remember when I was a kid, my dad and I used to play Little League a lot, and when I would pretend to be Jack Morris, I would always really try to pitch balls way outside because Morris seemed to be good at getting guys to chase bad pitches. But... uh I don't know if, if a lot of real empirical evidence goes into kind of forming opinions of players. And I think I think there's something to be said for going and kind of taking a longer look. And I'm I'm really grateful to the statisticians who, who do this. My friend Adam Dorowski's graded it with his website, The Hall of Stats. Uh, he's got every player in baseball history, you know, kind of rated for their hall worthiness. Uh, John Thorne and Pete Palmer have been really good about that. Bill James has been fantastic. And I... I think something would be lost in the Hall of Fame discussion if, 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 these, if these researchers weren't, you know, weren't doing their work. And a shout-out to Jay Jaffe and his Jaws system and his excellent new book, The Cooperstown Casebook. Oh, Jay, Jay, yeah, Jay, Jay does great work. I, he absolutely belongs in that conversation as well. So what is your theory with why Whitaker got snubbed? There are a lot of explanations out there, maybe none of them great, but what do you turn to when you say why is someone with numbers this good not on the ballot? I mean, I think you look at, if you were to look at his numbers and not really be sabermetrically inclined, you could look and you'd be like, okay, you know, something, 285 lifetime hitter, what is it, 2,500 hits, roughly, give or take, you know, um, somebody who played a lot of years with the Tigers, you know, certainly a very good player, but is he really, you know, one of the best in history? I don't know. I mean, and I'm speaking as devil's advocate there. Now, obviously, like, I look at his case, and yeah, I, I look at his comps, uh, he's, he's, I think even, yeah, it's like fourth for, you know, for guys who aren't in the Hall of Fame who are second baseman. But I think overall, I think 
he's maybe seventh or eighth out of all second basemen in baseball history for, I think his war is wins above average, but I mean, he, yeah, when you contextualize for the era he played in and for his all-around game, he is he is an elite second baseman who is better than plenty of guys who are in there. I, I think he rates, he rates favorably to Ryan Sandberg, who who really had no problem getting in the writers, uh, you know, and a number of other players as as well. He's he's similar or better too, who have long since been in the Hall of Fame. You've talked with all these players, and I'm curious if you asked Trammell how he felt about how much better he did with Hall of Fame voters than Whitaker. He at least got some votes and stayed on the ballot for 15 years, whereas Whitaker was one and done. And now it'll be extremely awkward if he does get inducted and Whitaker hasn't even been on the ballot yet or come anywhere close to induction. That's going to be a bit of an awkward moment in the induction speech. Did you have a chance to ask him how he views the imbalance between how he's done with voters relative to his longtime teammate Whitaker? No, that's actually. I mean, that that's that's something I might ask him about. I, 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 if I did ask him about that, you know, he and I, I talked to Trammell just, I think, just shy of, about a year and a half ago. I talked to him, yeah, in the spring of 2016, um, and I had asked him at the time, like his thoughts on Morris's uh, Hall of Fame candidacy, and I think I asked him about Whitaker's as well, because yeah, you really, you can't talk about Alan Trammell without Lou Whitaker, but. Uh, no, I'm not sure how Trammell feels about it. Yeah, I would expect if he gets voted into the Hall of Fame, I would think part of his speech would be devoted to making a plug for Lou Whitaker would be my guess. And, uh, yeah, I know Whitaker is a big supporter of his as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I might I might, I might, might be due to give Alan Trammell another call now. If and when Trammell does get in, will it create new momentum for Whitaker's case to say if Trammell's a Hall of Famer, so is Whitaker, his numbers are similar or better, their careers coincided, will it be harder to keep him out once Trammell is in? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if Trammell gets in, yeah, that's going to be kind of a never-ending meme of just, you know, people saying like, hey, you know, Lou Whitaker, you know, deserves to be in there too. I, I would see writers writing columns about it. I mean, when I talked to Whitaker, I got him... I got him off a cold call and we spent an hour and 15 minutes talking. So I, he's definitely, you know, he's somebody who is, is, is out there and is happy to talk. Um, so I would expect the yeah, Trammell gets in. I would think that Whitaker would probably be on the hall of fame radar for probably the foreseeable future. Um, and yeah, at least, at least put the guy on the ballot. I mean, I get that, you know, they they maybe didn't want, you know, three of the ten slots on the ballot to be taken up by former Tigers, but, you know, if that's the case, make the ballot a little bigger. There were, I I could count 20 to 30 guys I would have liked to have seen, at least for consideration this time, who didn't even make the ballot. I don't know if they want a lot of these guys getting in. I mean, over the last several years, uh, you know, the BBWA has all these top flight candidates, you know, Greg Maddox, Tom Clapp, Pedro Martinez, Frank Thomas, uh, you know, the list goes on. I, you know, there, there are no shortage of, of guys making it through the writer's ballot right now who most of them are probably statistically better than a lot of the guys who would be up for consideration with the veterans. So with the Hall of Fame, there's not really much incentive for them to really be easing the gates right now. I wish they would a little bit because I think there's some good candidates out there, but it's, it's just kind of the way things are at the moment. Tell me more about talking to Whitaker. He had the reputation during his playing days of being aloof and maybe indifferent, but you didn't find that when you got him on the phone. What did you find? Yeah, it was funny. You know, I Whitaker was kind of, you know, he's he's one of the guys who I'd really been wanting to talk to for for a long time. I mean, I'm I'm a believer in his case, and he's you know, somebody who I'd been wanting to talk to for a while. So when I got him on the phone initially, uh, you know, off a cold call, I was 
I, I garbled like my words for like 30 seconds or a minute when I was going to ask him the first question. Sometimes the first question is the hardest one to ask of the interview because it's, you kind of want to kick things off and get things rolling. Um, and since I write about the hall of fame, it can be a little awkward to go into an interview that way sometimes, especially when I talked to Whitaker, it was, it was, I think like in January. So it, he wasn't quite on the hall of fame radar yet. I mean, except to guys like me where it's like always hall of fame season, but when I was garbling my words, you know, uh, uh, another player might have gotten short with me. Instead, you know, he was real warm and gentle, and he kind of, he wound up asking, you know, kind of questioned to me. I think it was about him being overlooked. And yeah, he we talked for an hour and fifteen minutes and went through his entire career. Um, you know, I usually I ask guys about their Hall of Fame candidacies, but then I ask them questions about all throughout their career. You know, from the beginning to the end, we. We talked about, you know, his days as a prep player. He was actually, he was a pitcher, I think, when he was in high school, and he's, he's really good at it. And then we talked about him coming up through the minors, you know, with Trammell. There was a whole group of guys who, who basically the Tigers brought up in the late 70s, you know, Trammell, Parrish, uh, Dan, Dan Petrie, Jack Morris. Those guys all came up in the Tiger system more or less together. And then, you know, I asked him every question I had, and I, I could see to one extent, like, that, where he kind of have a reputation of, of being aloof because it, you know, some of some of the answers he gave were a little bit rambling, um, and I could see that. But you know, all I know is he he was very generous with his time, um, and you know, I I really appreciated talking to him. It's it's you know, it's one of the favorite interviews I've done so far. I mean, it was just uh, if I'd wanted to talk for another hour, he mind you, this was like nine o'clock on a Sunday night for him too. So I didn't exactly catch him early in the day. You've been talking to some other former players. You talked recently to Denny McLean, who, not surprisingly, was not shy about his own case for his own Hall of Fame candidacy, which by most measures is not very good. McLean's glove is in the Hall of Fame. The glove he wore when he got his 30th win in Detroit is on display. And i got to say, as a Tigers fan, that, that sounds right to me. The achievement was a Hall of Fame achievement and is being commemorated as such. But I see it more as a Hall of Fame achievement rather than a Hall of Fame career. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I like Denny. I actually, I, I talked to him earlier today for a different thing that I'm working on. Um, and he's, he's fun to talk to. He's a, he's a good quote. He's, he's not really shy about doubting himself or, or his candidacy. When I talked to him, he was comparing himself to Sandy Koufax. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I like, I like Denny McLean. I enjoyed talking to him, but I, he has some real serious knocks against his case. I mean, one, one of the big ones is that he only played for 10 years and, you know, I think he has less than 150 wins. Um, sabermetrically, he's not like a Johan Santana where, like, you look at his numbers and you can look at his sabermetrics and be like, okay, like, this guy, you know, is probably better than his lifetime record suggests. I mean, in McLean's case, it's kind of the opposite. He pitched in an era that was real favorable to pitchers. Um, he played for one of the best teams in baseball. I mean, you know, he, it's no accident he won 31 games for the for the 68 Tigers. I mean, granted, not everybody on that staff won, you know, 30 games, but still, that team was a was a juggernaut. And then, obviously, he had some real real serious off season problem or off field problems that you know contributed to the end of his career. So it's not it's not like he went off and fought in war or that he you know was uh, a victim of some kind of horrific injury or whatnot. I mean, he you know he, he kind of did what he did to himself. Um, so I, I think he's a player who can be celebrated. Is he a Hall of Famer? I, I mean, I, I don't think so. But I, I'm not too that his club's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, I, I, I like the Hall of Fame kind of, 
it, recognizing the history of more players, even if their names don't necessarily wind up on plaques. Rocky Calavito played for the Tigers in the early 60s, and you spoke with him earlier this year, and he's a player that sounds really bitter about his experience with Hall of Fame voting. Of course, he feels very helpless with all of it being out of his hands, as all these players do, but he was one of those who, who sounded angry about it. How did you react to his response, and how did you read that anger that he feels? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I've, talked to, I've talked to enough, uh, you know, enough kind of long-term overlooked Hall of Fame candidates now that I... It's almost like it's becoming kind of like a frequently a frequently brought up kind of point. Like I remember, um, I've talked to Jim Todd a number of times, and I'm, I'm actually I'm supposed to talk to him later today for the, this other piece I'm working on. But um, I know um, I know Cott had told me, you know, like his quote was, "My cynicism runneth over," um, you know, just because he's he's a guy who's been up for consideration so many times. I I was talking to Louis Tian in, in like April and he was saying that he's told his family that, you know, if he gets voted in after he dies, like he's instructed them like not to go and accept the honor. And so I, when I talked to Rocky, I, I brought this up. I just was like, Hey, you know, Louis Tian said this to me, what's your thought? And he told me, yeah, you know, I told my family to, uh, you know, basically if the hall of fame inducts me after I die, you know, to stick it up there, you know what, basically. Um, and he said, yeah, tell him that's from me, Rocky. So yeah, it was, it made me laugh when he said it. I mean, um, but yeah, this is, you know, the way the Hall of Fame is acting is not going unnoticed by, by these older players. And it's, yeah, my, my friend Adam Dorowski wrote a great piece a couple of years ago for, for Hardball Times where he was like, yeah, you know, earlier generations of baseball, they, they got to have, you know, their weight Hoyts and their, who's it, their Stan Kovaleskis and Lefty Gomez's in the Hall of Fame. You know, why, why can't this generation? I mean, you know, it's the kind of the second and third tier of the Hall of Famers, which, for whatever reason, it's, it's it's getting really hard for this type of candidates to get in. And I, I guess kind of the argument, you know, against having them in is in like the sixties and the seventies and into the eighties, it became extraordinarily easy for a lot of these guys to get in. And you had guys who had absolutely no business in the hall of fame getting in there, you know, most notoriously during the seventies when you had the Frankie Frisch veteran committee and putting in basically his old teammates kind of on a wholesale rate. Um, but, uh, I don't know, the pendulum's kind of swung in the other direction now, and I, 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 for one, think it's swung too far. You did a piece on the Braves' longtime pitching coach, Leo Mazzoni, and asked if a pitching coach would ever be enshrined in the Hall of Fame, and the answer is probably not. But Mazzoni talked about Johnny Sane, who was the pitching coach on the 1968 Tigers who won the World Championship. Tell me what Mazzoni remembered about Johnny Sane. Johnny Sane uh, was... Yeah, the celebrated. So he was a celebrated pitcher for starters. He used to be spot insane and pray for the rain was the mantra for the '48 Braves who went to the World Series. Um, and then after Sane was done, you know, with his career, um, he went on to a, a second, arguably better career as a pitching coach. Um, he had success all over the place. What was peculiar was, you know, he was he was somebody whose methods were were different, and the rest of baseball really didn't pick up on them with one exception, and that's Leo Mazzoni. Basically, late 1970s, Johnny Sane is out of baseball, or at least he's out of the majors, and I think he's working in the Braves system, and he's living in a living in an RV outside of spring training, and Leo Mazzoni, who's coming up at the time, is kind of a minor league pitching coach. He goes and seeks Johnny Sane out. Sane proceeds to teach him everything he knows, and... Mazzoni brings that into the majors and eventually, you know, becomes pitching coach for the Atlanta Braves and has all the success, you know, with 
Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, John Smoltz, and then a bunch of other guys who aren't Hall of Famers, but who had great seasons when they were pitching for the Braves under Leo Mazzoni. So I think if you were going to enshrine a pitching coach, it'd be either one of those guys. But yeah, the Hall of Fame can be kind of adverse to change. I mean, they don't put scouts in, they don't put coaches in. Um, there's all sorts of people who, yeah, just aren't really considered. Um, and it's unfortunate, really. Uh, but yeah, no, it's funny, uh, Leo, and I, I mean, and a lot of a lot of former players still sing Johnny Sain's praises, and he's he's been dead for over a decade now. So you make it your business to read the tea leaves of Hall of Fame voting, and you do it well. So this is no knock on your work, but sometimes after things happen like they did last week, I wonder: are the tea leaves readable, or are some of these results kind of random? How do you see it? Are there still patterns even when things go differently than how some of us fans want them to go? I mean, I, I was able to, to nail eight of the ten candidates who were, who were on the ballot last week. I think at least when it comes to putting a ballot together, you can have a pretty good idea of how things will go. Because, I mean, for one thing, the same candidates tend to be considered again and again. Like, you know, Louis Tiant's been up for consideration several times. Marvin Miller has. Um, you know, if Morris or Trammell don't get in this time, I pretty much guarantee that they'll be candidates again. Um so you can kind of look to that. Now, as far as the actual the actual election results, it's hard to say. I mean, I've got a, a list of more than 1,300 yeah, veterans candidates who go back to 1953. And you can look at guys who got in, and you can kind of see, you could sort of see their cases bubbling up in the years before they got in. Like, uh, I look at a guy like Joe Gordon, a uh, former Yankees second baseman who got uh, finally got voted in in, I want to say, 2000, 2009, I think it was. Uh, Gordon was a guy who was up for consideration with the Veterans Committee probably 15 or 20 times before he actually got in. He even, he even had a year where he got 75% of the vote, but uh, the committee was at its cap of guys that could induct that year, so he actually wasn't inducted. So you can look to stuff like that, and you can kind of have an idea. I know Marvin Miller missed by one vote in the past, which is why I, I think he could come close again this year. Um Morrison Miller, or excuse me, Morrison Trammell, they they just they did well enough on the on the BBWA ballot that I assume they're going to do pretty well on the on the veterans ballot this year as well. So you gave Morris last week a sixty percent chance of induction and Trammell fifty percent, but those were your most likely inductees. Yeah, and I should um, I should add by the way those are those are those are just numbers that I, I figured for this current election cycle. I I think overall I, I would give Morris probably more like a seventy five percent chance of eventually getting in just. This particular ballot seems really uncertain to me, just because they're pretty much everybody on this ballot is a name candidate. You know, there's there's no feller candidates. There's no, you know, there's no obscure executive or an umpire you've never heard of and really shouldn't care about that much. I mean, pretty much everybody on here, nine of the ten candidates for players. I think three or four of the guys are, are, are former MVPs. I mean, the one non-player is Marvin Miller, who you know is one of the most celebrated candidates who isn't in the Hall of Fame. Um, so I I just, I think for this this particular election could be somewhat of a crapshoot just because there's, you know, there's so, so many candidates who could get votes. So can you give us a hunch or a prediction? How many veteran inductees will we be looking at next month, if any? If I had to guess, I... I could see Morris, Trammell, and Miller all getting in. My thought is that it'll it'll be... At least one of those guys, if I had to guess, I would say probably Morris is getting in, but I could see Miller and Trammell getting in as well. Yeah, but if I had to make a prediction, I'd say, I don't know, 
also there is a chance that nobody gets in. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd say Morris Trammell and Miller are going to be the three most popular candidates, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on anybody getting in from this ballot. I just, I, I do think it'll, it'll be a competitive ballot. And I think, you know, the, the committee gets together at the winter meetings and they talk. I, I think there's going to be an interesting long meeting in store where they go over all these candidates and, hey, I'll be interested to see what comes of it. And I think you were the first to report that the identities of the voters on this committee will be known at some point next month. Do you expect them to speak publicly at all about their votes and their deliberation? Will that shed any light on the process? Yeah, I mean, so my understanding is is that the, the names are, are going to be released in early December. I imagine that would be after the vote comes out. Um, usually it's it, it can be kind of hard to get the can, to get the committee members to talk because they're, they're instructed that what they do is done in confidence and they're not supposed to discuss it publicly. You know, uh, good reporters can can get can get information to kind of shake out, and that's what I'm I'm hoping to be able to do. Um, yeah, I would love to learn more about kind of who the power brokers are on this committee and who really wields influence, and yeah, what kind of consideration really is given to the candidates who'll be in who'll be in front of them. But I I think more is to be revealed on that front. Well, Graham, if we have some new inductees next month, I'm going to want to ask you about them. If we don't have any, I'm definitely going to want to ask you about that. And I'll be curious to see what you can find out as you're on the trail of some of these voters. So either way, I look forward to talking with you next month. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. It'd, it'd be my pleasure. Uh, yeah, just let me know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have lots of opinions about this stuff. And yeah, I, I follow it pretty closely. So yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I'll definitely be looking, looking with kind of a fine-tooth comb at what goes down over the next few weeks. Graham Womack writes for the Sporting News. He is a staff writer for the Roseville Press Tribune in Roseville, California. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review to help us find new listeners. You can also subscribe through Google Play and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History. Join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. Mm-hmm.